When you Google my name, do you know what comes up? Best-selling author Dr. Gad Saad is a man of science, logic, and common sense. Not to pat myself on the back, but if Google wants to say it, who am I to stop them? What I can confirm is that I take a thoughtful, logical approach to my work and also my finances. That's why I'm so excited about Masterworks, the premier platform for investing in blue-chip artwork. The kinds of multi-million dollar pieces that billionaires collect, like Picasso, Monet, and Basquiat. You don't need a PhD to know that these pieces can make great investments. Contemporary art prices outpaced the S&P 500 by nearly three times from 1995 to 2020. But everyday people like you and me have been locked out of this exclusive world. Masterworks lets you invest in a fraction of these pieces so you don't need to write a $30 million check for the whole thing. And with over 260,000 members, $300 million in art, and countless features in the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and more, they've got quite an impressive track record. That's not even considering the billion-dollar valuation they just received from venture capital investors. The Wall Street Journal reported recently that art is one of the hottest markets on earth and that the ultra-rich will see bigger paydays from art than stocks, real estate, or private equity. Luckily for all of you, I've partnered with Masterworks to give my listeners priority access. Just head to my link at masterworks.io slash sad truth. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Hey guys, uh, the internet has been asking for this chat for a long time. A, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Today I've got Victor Davis Hansen. How you doing, Victor? Very good. Uh, okay, I want to go first through, uh, I'm not going to list your 20 plus books because that would take the entire show, <laughs> but let's just say that you're the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at Stanford. You're a Professor Emeritus at, of Classics at Cal State Fresno, where I think you thought about for about 20 years. Visiting professor at Hillsdale College. I'll be speaking at a Hillsdale College event uh, shortly in February. Over 20 books, including The Other Greeks, Who Killed Homer, Mexifornia, The Savior Generals, The Case for Trump, and your latest book, The Dying Citizen. What I thought we'd do is start with some um, stuff on ancient Greece, because yep. while, while, of course, I've, I've, I've been familiar, obviously, with the ancient Greeks for a while, uh, I, I was reintroduced to them because in my the current book that I'm writing, A Recipe for the Good Life, I don't think there is a tradition of folks that have written more about the good life than the ancient Greeks. My good friend Nassim Talib once told me that uh, I don't know what, what you guys do when you study psychology, Gad, because the ancient Greeks have already done it all. There's nothing for you to add to that cursus. So... With that said, can you explain to us, as an expert on ancient Greece, what explains the Greek miracle? What was in the water that made these guys so outstanding? Well, I mean, there were people living in the Greek peninsula, the Mycenaeans, from, say, 2800 BC down to the fall of Mycenaean, 1200. And there was a dark ages from 
1100 to 800. But when we talk about the Greeks, we're talking about this sudden explosion in the 8th century of city-states, 1500 of them, autonomous. No word in the Greek vocabulary for nation, so they were all fragmented. And the, the climate was in, it was Mediterranean so that they could congregate outside. I don't think you could have had consensual government given primitive engineering in Sweden. It would be very hard in the winter, but they could meet outside, they could have theaters, but so could other people. So what was different about them? And I think it was some type of, uh, I've written the other Greeks about it, uh, an agricultural revolution where they mastered the arts of the Mediterranean triad, uh, wheat, barley, the olive and grape. And that gave them sort of a 360 degree diet. It allowed them to process the foods and make them value more valuable. They exported and they created surpluses very quickly. And then each city state, uh, because they had few people relatively, there were seven or eight that were big, decided to protect private property and they had councils and from private property came consensual government and then from that came personal freedom and then from personal freedom was speculation and you know the french philosophers in classics made a big deal about the climate and that they could observe nature 360 degrees i'm not sure if that's true or not but there was something about the climate and the topography and the geography of greece and then they were in a neighborhood uh, where they had the wealthy Egyptians to the south, the wealthier Persians to the east, the wild uh, Mediterranean. And uh, it was a period of tension, interaction of ideas, uh, meeting different people's ideas, architecture, art. But the main thing was that they valued personal freedom and they were very suspicious of having some kind of inclusive government in that rough you know, when you go to Greece today, it's only 50,000 square miles. But for you to go to Sparta and then up to, say, Olympia, then back over to Napoleon and then up to Thessalonica, it's, a, it's, it's not easy. It's not like driving in where I live in the San Joaquin Valley. It's flat. There are mountains, there's passes, it's rough terrain. And so they were isolated peoples from the rest of that helped them a lot from the conundrum of northern Europe and, um, you know, tribal invasions and things. But the main thing was that they were isolated and they were speculative and inquisitive and that created kind of a race between city-state, you know, were the Athenians, were the Thebans, were the Spartans. Somehow they were able to keep those tensions within reasonable parameters by crafting a type of ritual hoplite warfare that was not, not as destructive as other people's. They didn't destroy each other as much as other people did. And, uh, so they were, they had a proper tension of competitive, I guess Hesiod, the, the seventh century poet made a good point when he said, there's two types of envy, the destructive envy, I want you to destroy somebody who does better than you, and the emulative envy that you get your wonderment at how well they do and you copy them. And that seems to be more of the idea of a city-state resident. They heard of a particular other city-state or a particular person. They wanted to find out what was going on and how they could rival or beat that person, but not destroy them in anger. It's, it seems also that, uh, I mean, they had, I mean, for lack of a better word, I might say intellectual open-mindedness. They were, they were polymaths by definition, right? So, so yes. the same great intellectual could be pondering about the cosmos, but then write a treatise about, you know, how you should live a happy life. So there were no 
you know, institutionalized specialization silos that forced me to only study that little narrow field. I was a broad thinker that would just sit yes. and philosophize. Uh, yes. Do you think that had something to do with I think it did. And they didn't have formal schools until uh, the latter fifth and fourth centuries when you had the academy and the lyceum and this garden and, and the stoa. But even then they were they were inclusive of all these different disciplines, but mostly education was done on a tutorial basis. So, and that, that person was was considered to have knowledge of mathematics, biology, rhetoric, literature, history. I think the other thing I think distinguishes them, they were very, you can really see that in Plutarch's lives, even though he was a Roman, but he talked about Greece, what made these leaders. It was the idea that physicality was a mirror image of the intellectual life. So Socrates was a hoplite. He was a stonemason. Um, Themistocles was not just a general, but he was also a business person. And there was this idea that you had to be connected to the physical concrete world. Aristotle was a tutor, of course, of Alexander, but he was in the conundrum and the, the dangers of Macedonian court life. And he, he stressed uh, biology a lot. And it's very hard to see. Sophocles was a, a man of action. He was a general. Aeschylus on his tomb said he fought at Marathon. He made no mention of the 91 plays he wrote. So that's very different than ours. We have an intellectual academic class that is by definition divorced from not only physical labor, but knowledge of people who engage in physical labor, who could add a lot of insight to them if they would listen to them, but we don't. You know, uh in a sense, you, you preempted one of my uh, subsequent questions where I was going to mention the fact that you're someone who is both a farmer and obviously a highbrow intellect. And you often, uh, I've listened to some of your uh, conversations, you admire those people who have that physicality, right? I mean, you could be both yes. brawn and brains. Uh, you know, Thomas Sowell, a, a friend of yours, uh, I've never mm-hmm. had the, the privilege of meeting him. You know, as someone who also left the highfalutin world of academia, he still remained a thinker, but he also does photography. Uh, is there something that makes people who can both, uh, you know, uh, fix a, a Hoover machine and write uh, stuff about classics that makes them superior to those who are simply sitting in the ivory tower? I think so. One of the things it does is uh, it gives you autonomy. I noticed that people in the ivory tower, the ones I've met, if their toilet gets backed up or their lights go out, they get kind of panicky. And then they have this fear of the working class who comes in, they might be ripping them off or they don't like them and they pander to them. But if you if you have some familiarity and you can fix things yourself, you get a, a sense of confidence. And then the second thing is the working classes are mysterious to the intellectual, but if you take time to work with them in physical jobs, you learn a lot and you realize that the intellectual classes believe that these people are plumbing and doing electrical work and driving trucks because they don't have the aptitude or the curiosity of the intellectual class. They never assume, they never assume that people could do what professors do, but they choose not to because they have both intellect and, and they're people of action. So I've noticed that I had a farmer come over yesterday. We were talking about politics. Uh, I talked to a highway patrolman at breakfast not too long ago, and I, the people I see all day, and then I juxtapose those with the people I meet at Stanford, because you know, I kind of have a schizophrenic 180-mile <laughs> commute each week. And I can tell you that 
the people who are out there in the real world, the arena, I mean, it's much easier than being a professor. And anybody, we, we make fun of people who work at 7-Eleven, but my God, to have the inventory in your head, worry about security, worry about com competitive pricing, being there all day and night. You have to be a mathematician, a statistician, a physically impo imposing person to work there at night. So they have a lot of skills that intellectuals don't have. And I think that that was something that, that that's building in America and we saw it with the MAGA phenomenon, but there were a whole group of people, half the country, who said to the bi-coastal elite, don't write us off anymore, don't condescend to us. We are the ones that fight your wars. We're the ones that truck your food. We're the ones that grow your food. We're the ones that make your power. We build your homes. Uh, you like granite counters. You like stainless steel appliances. Where do you think that comes from? Right. Yes, yeah, you know. Yes, we appreciate Facebook. Yes, we appreciate the Harvard professor. But without us, you wouldn't live another day. So that message is, I think, is getting stronger and stronger, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, you know, I uh, I receive, as I'm sure you do, you know, tons of you know letters from from folks from around the world and from all sorts of walks of life. And the ones that I typically feel most proud to receive are the corrections officers guy, the, as you said, the trucker, the, you know, I received a gift of a pin from some army rangers guys. Uh, that impresses me a lot, or not impresses me, it, it thrills me a lot more than when I receive a, an email from a fellow professor, maybe at Stanford, maybe at some other top school not that I don't appreciate that, but first of all, the fact that I have the reach to precisely be able to reach the corrections officer says that I'm doing something right because I am not stuck in my little bubble. So I completely share your uh, admiration for those folks and I highly respect them. Yeah, I think it, it reflects a national. When I, I go to Greece a lot, and I've been to Israel and when I go to small vulnerable countries, I always ask myself, why are these countries in existence given their neighborhoods and the hatred of Turks or the hatred of a lot of the Islamists for Israel? But when you start talking to people who are professors or leaders or general, you start to see that they're very inform much more informal than their counterparts in Europe and they're more connected, at least the ones that I've met. So when you talk to a Greek professor, he may have a farm that he in his village and he'll talk to you about viticulture or or if you see somebody who's a, a teach a eighth grade teacher they may be driving a taxi at night when i know that and i've talked to israeli military people um you know i read a long essay when i was younger about sharon he he loved cattle and so there, there are people like that that are in those countries and i think that gives them a resilience and practicality and pragmatism that other countries don't have in Western Europe, it seems. Eastern Europe is a little bit like that, too. They, they, they don't have a margin of error to create a, uh, a thinking class that's going to be divorced from nature and, and will be supported by its so-called exalted, uh, entitled position. Everybody's involved with every aspect of life, so to speak, and that's not true here in Western Europe. There, you, you know, and I've often made the analogy that... Uh, in the same way that we pick our Navy SEALs to have certain physical skills, to have certain temperaments, you know, they, they better be courageous, they can't be cowardly, they need to pass certain physical requirements. Uh, when you choose professors to lead the charge in, in the cerebral world, you typically are not picking intellectual <laughs> SEALs, right? You're picking invertebrate, castrated, 
play along nicely. Whereas to really go to war, so to speak, when it comes to the intellectual battlefield, you need people that have some of the same temperament, or at least the ones who are going to create the discontinuous changes in academia. They need to be, quote, intellectually brawny. Is there a way by which we could better select academics to have those traits? Uh, there's two problems that I've encountered. One is academia is self-selecting because of the culture you described. It attracts people that, that feel that that's they're the fish that like to swim in that sort of uh, emasculated culture. And the other is that while they don't like, while they're not physical and they're not, they have a passive aggressive ability to spot people who are iconoclastic or unorthodox. And they, I've watched this for 40 years, um, 50 years. And one of my pastimes, I get each week a letter along the following, Dear Professor Hansen, I'm a, a professor at so-and-so. I also own a farm. Also, I'm a Navy retired Air Force pilot, whatever it is. And I can start to see where the letter's going. And I was, uh, I said something at a department meeting, I can't get my book published. I, I'm, my tenure is not gonna be renewed. Uh, my thesis advisor disowned me. Is there any way you can connect me? Can you help me? Can you get my book published? So my wife and always says, what are you doing? I'm saying I'm doing my ritual one hour in the morning, uh, calling people up for this guy and this guy, and they all have one thing in common. They can't make, they can't, they're tragic heroes. They have to be themselves and by, and that makes them larger and greater mega sukhoi, greater souled people than those around them, and they're going to be destroyed by those around them. So there's not very many of them. It's funny, John Heath, a brilliant classicist that I know, we wrote a book called Who Killed Homer, and the first thing that got us a lot of hate mail, we said, how odd to go to the American Philological Association every year to hire people, but you have to hire through them. But when you see the people in the lobby, and they're supposedly studying the Spartans at Thermopylae or Socrates at Delium or Demosthenes, you know, challenging in the in the Ecclesia Alexander and his enormous power. And then you look at the physical specimens and what they're talking about that are, are the guardians and custodians of this legacy. You want, you can understand why classics that has such a wonderful, brilliant field of uh, knowledge and inquiry is dying. It's being strangulated. And especially now in the woke postmodern mood, you know, where everything is the rhetoric of gender of the cult of Dionysus and the transgendered aspect of Hera's daughter and all this crap. But yeah, it, it's, it's a problem. And I think I, I used to think maybe there was some hope in the internet because sometimes I go on and I see these amateur guys that are in my field of classical military history. And, you know, they, they do things that academics don't. They'll go out and make swords and weigh them and then try to calibrate how long they can hold them. And that's kind of interesting. They, they make their own videos. And the Internet, while it has no standards, it does have a – it's like the arena, thumbs up or thumbs down. So if an idea is stupid, then everybody comes in and trashes a person. The problem is you never know – there's no criterion, so nobody has to earn – the right to express themselves, which I don't really agree with, but there is some notion, I know, that you should have some language background to make sure your audience understands that you're you're speaking from some type of a of, of prior effort and skill. But I I think the internet does give you a lot of democratic 
voices and equality and the may the best idea win. Yeah, what well, brings in people. Yeah, but by the way, this is I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar, there's the field of evolutionary epistemology which basically uses Darwinian principles to argue that in the same way that you have, you know, selection heredity when it comes to gene propagation, the same mechanism takes place when it comes to knowledge propagation. So you're, you're spot on. Uh, building on the, as a segue to what we were talking about, sort of having folks who have the intellectual brawn to be in academia. Uh, I mean, I in looking at your history, you left, uh, I mean, academia in the professor, prof, professorship sense, uh, early in your career, you decided, you know, I, mean, I guess I'm going to ask you eventually why you did that. Thomas Sowell did that as well. Uh, a recent one who's entered that pantheon of leaving academia early is a good friend of mine. I'm not sure if you know him or not, Jordan Peterson. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm, if I may put myself in this uh, austere group, uh, I'm frankly thinking that even though to be a professor is in my DNA, I used to be 11 years old. And I used to say that I'm, I'm going to be two things in life. I'm going to be a professional soccer player and I'm going to be a professor. So it is it has always been my desire to, to live a, a, you know, a cerebral life. But it is becoming so burdensome to be an academic that even the unthinkable for me, which is thinking about maybe leaving early. I'm 57 years old, so I could still have a long career in academia. So... First, I could ask you, I guess, what is the reason that you left? Maybe you can speak to why Thomas left. Do you think that many folks are going to be following in your lead? And is there a way we can revert that sinking ship? Well, I'd start just as a preface that I'm not sure that Jordan Peterson won't be more valuable once he's out of there because academics is a stagnant and inert profession for now. It's really descended to a level of parody. But I left, I was part of it. There were three reasons. I've often thought about that. And I was 17 when I went to UC Santa Cruz. It was just open. It was a good new school. And I took the advanced placement so I didn't have to take the GE. And I got there and I met a brilliant professor, John Lynch, and they had a classics program. So I had a very asymmetrical education. I did not take any GE maths. I, I just took Greek and Latin. And I went to Greece for a year as archaeology student. And then when I went to graduate school, I did not take any time off. I went right to Stanford and I finished very quickly in four years. So I was literally 25 years old. I didn't, you know, I had been, I'd grown up on a farm, but I hadn't really been farming except in the summer. So when I was 25, there were three things that happened. One was I needed to get out. I, I was losing what we're talking about. I was just studying stuff. I had to learn German. I had to learn French. I had to be, Stanford was a philological department. So there's a big exam in writing in Greek, writing in Latin, 12 seminars, Greek literature, Latin literature, Roman history. I was just studying literally 12 hours a day. And I didn't go to prep school. So I didn't learn Latin and Greek until I was uh, at Santa Cruz. So I had to catch up. But anyway, I thought I need to get out for a while. And then the second thing, I got on the wrong side of a very brilliant man that I look in retrospect, I won't mention his name, was my thesis advisor. And you could argue at that time, he was probably the most powerful man in classics. He was on the American, president of the American Philological. He was on the American School. And he had been my mentor. And he started to see the traits that you're talking about in me and he thought that they were a liability and he was trying to help me at the time he says you're stubborn you're outspoken you go to that stupid ranch 
you don't take this seriously. When I ask you to go do something for me, I ask you to go take some students' degrees. You say you got to go do tractor work, or you know. Uh, and he kind of hammered me and hammered me, and finally I said, I, I do the work, and I, I've got my thesis being published, and yet you don't give me. And he said, you're never going to make it in this field. And I don't want to speak ill of the the departed because I'm not going to mention his name. But he said, as far as I'm concerned, you're not going to be you're never gonna get a job. And when I applied, there was a person at one of the uh, military academies and he said to me, have you read your file? In those days they were top secret. So I mailed it to a big farming company that I knew <laughs> and they called me and said, well, we're not gonna violate the trust, but with the, your thesis advisor, what he wrote about your obstinate temperament. Wow. And he said that you were not, another person said that you were a brilliant philologist, but you knew nothing of sympathy, you knew nothing of opera, you didn't like the Bay Area, and you were going to be a troublesome person. So you're not going to get a job. So that was, I can't say that it was by choice at all, but I wanted to do something. And then I had, my grandparents were very elderly, and my parents were working in town to support this farm. And I'm speaking from it right here, the same uh, room that I grew up in. So We've had it, you know, it's we've had it uh, now it's 151 years old. The house is 140 years old. And I went back and the first thing I noticed, the house was falling apart. My grandmother was 93. My grandfather died. Uh, my twin brother had been in a Ph.D. program. He was trying to keep the farm. There was no money. We were in an ag recession. And so I literally at night learned how to weld. Uh, I learned how to do electricity. I tried to keep the house roof. I not very good, but I got the plumbing, the electricity back. I got the house working again. I, I put a new roof on. I, I I did everything. I had about five or six cars. I worked on cars. I worked on the tractors. I did spraying. And uh, I did a lot of the labor with the people working here. Uh, so I just got immersed in it for five years. And then suddenly, at one point, my wife said, you made $6,000 last year. We have no <laughs> health we had so I went up I had been going up to Cal State Fresno it was the closest place I could think of and asking for classics and they had no classics program and finally they said we'll let you teach Latin so I taught Latin and farm for the next three years and then I taught Greek and the next thing uh, we had a new dean a new president they liked me and within five years we had four people a classics department I was doing it for time and then uh, I did both farming and then Finally, when I got into my 40s, I couldn't do both. So I retired from farming. I still live here and I helped out. And then the bad times came and my siblings sold out uh, and I was the only one left here simply because I had an outside income. And I have 45 acres of almonds in the house, and, but I'm the only one left of the five of us that were here. Do you regret that you left uh, your professorship or you've never looked back? Uh, well, I was 49 and I was teaching some semesters overloads, which are five semester classes each. And at the Cal State system, it would not be uncommon to have 35 students in two sections of each of Latin and maybe 50 or 60 in Greek history and maybe 70 in humanities and with no TAs. And so I was literally leaving the farm at six and coming home at nine and correcting all weekends and trying to write a book. So I was getting about four hours sleep, literally, and, and I had some health issues in those days doing that. So 
When I turned 49, the Hoover Institution called me and said, you know, you're writing op-eds on politics. Would you like to come? And so I did it both. And then I decided at 49, um, I couldn't do it. So in 2004, I retired at 49 and I went to Hoover. But I wanted to teach, so I got into my contract that I can go a month every year for the last 17 years to Hillsdale. Right. And it's kind of diminished from a month down to two and a half weeks. But I t teach every day an intensive semester course there. So I still teach. And, you know, I, there's times when at Hoover, the institution is now starting to consider offering classes in Western civilization, maybe as an alternative to some that's not offered by Stanford itself for credit. So I might go back and teach. But uh, I... I uh, for 21 years, I did nothing but farm and teach and tried to write. And then now for the last 20 years, I've been writing a lot and uh, and teaching a month a year. Got you. Uh, so uh, from your thesis, I mean, I haven't read it, but I looked at yeah. what the topic was on. Uh, I think warfare and farming somehow yes. linked to each other. Yes. And then when I often hear you speaking about issues where you're talking about contemporary issues, but linking them to some ancient Greek, you know, here is the example of the tragic hero. Here is Trump who mimics that archetype. Yeah. Uh, so there are all of these links that you're making, which really resonates with me because uh, I suspect you may not be familiar with my work. But in my scientific work, I apply evolutionary uh, psychology to the study of human behavior. And so I'm very drawn to synthetic thinking, to consilience. Recently, you may have heard the the gentleman who reinvigorated this word into our collective lexicon, E.O. Wilson, the Harvard biologist, yes, who wrote it, right? And he's, he wrote a fantastic book, one of the most, I think one of the most uh, influential books in my academic career. He wrote a book in the late 90s called Consilience, which refers to unity of knowledge. Uh, and so in, in your case, it's almost built into how you think to take these these disparate areas, right? I mean, warfare and farming, you wouldn't think of making that link. Linking some guy from 2000 years ago to Trump, you may have not known that there is such a link. So is this something that you developed or is this, you either are a synthetic thinker or you're not? It's hard to know to credit me because I, for most of my life, I feel like I know the 182 miles from Selma, my farm, to Stanford University because <laughs> I've gone back and forth both as a student and as a professor there for a while and then as a Hoover fellow. So it was kind of schizophrenic, but it all started. I was in a seminar and a student got up and he was it was about the, the historian Thucydides and, he was, and as I sighed, he said, and then, of course, all of the agriculture was wiped out. And I said, well, Thucydides says that they ravaged in the third invasion what had grown up again. He said, well, yeah, but it can't grow up. I said, oh, yes, it can. And I had spent my life te tearing out vineyards and, you know, you tear out a, a vineyard and the next thing you know, uh, the next year out of the ground comes a, a sprout and you can graft it if you want. And I'd had olive trees and grain and I knew that when you burn grain, it was very impossible to light green grain, and except when it was for about 30 days during harvest. So I mentioned that, and everybody laughed at that. And then one of the professors said, well, you understand that devastation is assumed to be total, absolute, and nothing 
and I said, but it, it requires how many people you had per square mile. Attica has over a thousand square miles. The idea that Spartans for three weeks could destroy the agriculture, which is, you know, it's hard to burn, it's hard to tear out, hard to cut down, things go back. And that started me in, in trying to do, uh, and so, there were a lot of people who at that point, nobody had studied Greek agriculture, but I was lucky because in France and uh, Britain, there was a whole developing, let's study the two things that everybody thinks of Greeks are. It was an agrarian society. 90 out of 100 people were agrarians. And then hoplites fighting farming. And I just came upon that time where there were other people independently thinking this is something that's completely neglected. So I was able to do Warfare and Agriculture, a book called Hoplites and the other Greeks in that area. And that was something that people 30 years ago thought was very important. And I think it was because that's what, and, my, and they were kind of advocacy books. I would say, we talk about the Greeks, but we don't understand anything about their rural life. Yet that was most of them. And how hard, why would they have armor at 105 degrees in the summer protecting their, so there has to be some type of ritualistic nature to, they were agreed on rules and we got, there were all these things. So it's a, it was a good field. And I still, I try to write a scholarly article every year and I try to review scholarly books, but uh, I tried to bring that knowledge of, uh, and I've noticed the other thing very quickly is I noticed that people in the field that were writing on double entry economy, uh, bookkeeping in the ancient world, or they were talking about the composition of bronze sculpture. The people who had expertise that were bronze workers are the people who were accountants and classicists. I always gravitated to their work because they, they grounded it in some reality. And every time I would read something about farming by an academic, I thought, man, this is just, this is just not not right. And there was a whole corpus of literature, Alcafron's letters, aliens, uh, that people hadn't looked at. So in the other Greeks, I tried to go use the uh, thesaurus of Greek literature, every word, 60 million words at that time, and search words for agricultural implements or activities, and then find obscure articles and bring new evidence to the argument. I thought that was important. But uh, I've always tried to do that in one way or the other. And uh, there was a p person, I won't mention his name, high in the administration. I wrote, well, you mentioned the tragic hero. And that person called up and said to the effect, I like the hero part, but not the tragic. <laughs> and uh, I made the argument that in the case of Trump, that uh, in reference to Trump, that had he been like Shane after doing something that he felt was underappreciated, he would. He had the skill sets to eliminate the cattle barons. If you've seen that George Stevens 1955 movie or something, and they're all that way. The Peck and Paul movies, Magnificent Seven, all of those things. And I said I was outlining what the Western John Ford tragic, a John Wayne and the Searchers. They have skills. The townspeople, the the, the sodbusters are paralyzed with uh, these enemies that they can't handle. They invite him in. He does wondrous things, but the manner in which he does as they start to see that, as you know, the end of the tunnel, they turn on their benefactor and say, well, you know, we really didn't want you to shoot that guy. And yes, this guy has been oppressing us, but the way you take both of those guns out or you're a killer, 
And then he realizes that he has no place in the society that he has saved, so he rides off wounded and everything. is great line, The Magnificent Seven, when I think Yul Brenner says to uh, Steve McQueen, he says something like, uh, well, uh, they they do feel that we did something for them. I think uh, Yul Brenner says, and they're going to be even happier to see us go. <laughs> right. And uh, so I, I had mentioned that maybe Trump, before the January 6th thing, after, but after the election, that he had, if you look at certain barometers of the economy and foreign policy and oil production, whatever your politics are, there were successes, the border. But he needed to go down and save for his party the two Senate seats in Georgia, maybe, and be barnstorming and then ride off into the sunset and leave a blueprint, but not, you know, as I said, Shane doesn't come back. The Magnificent Seven, even though their sequel, don't come back. Gary Cooper throws down his badge in high noon and doesn't turn the buck, buckboard back and said, well, I had second thoughts. But And then I mentioned some Sophoclean characters that, that are wonderful, like Antigone or Ajax or one of my favorite Philoctetes, but they don't end up well. But they do good because they don't end up well and they're willing to end not end up well and that didn't go over very well with the politician I was talking to. <laughs> well I mean that speaks to I mean you're linking all of these different historical references to contemporary issues again speaks to consilience because so let, let me give you some examples of how I use historical yeah. uh, uh you know uh, material in my own research so so I talk about cultural products as fossils of the human mind. So in the same way that a paleontologist can study the phylogenetic history of a species by looking at the fossil remains or the skeletal remains, mm -hmm. human minds don't fossilize, it's organic. But what does fossilize, I argue, are of course the cultural products that they leave behind. So yeah. I can study some ancient Greek uh, piece and I completely understand exactly what he is talking about. I understand the threats of paternity uncertainty. I understand sibling rivalry. I understand parent-child offspring. So these universal themes manifest themselves in very predictable ways, precisely because that ancient Greek poet shares the exact same software. And he may not know what an iPhone is, he may not know what a plane is, but the software running his brain is exactly like yours and mine. We're, we're identical. And so I think from an evolutionary perspective, studying history is really powerful because it allows us to see the, the invariant human nature that we all share, which, as you know, Victor, in the social sciences, to argue that there is such a thing as a human nature, that biology matters. I mean, you must be, I mean, I'm Jewish and I must be a Jewish Nazi because how dare you say that biology matters? How can we get through people to break through some of these idea pathogens that have parasitized the academic world? It's hard. I mean, that was the basis of Euthydides' history. He said, because human nature is going to remain constant throughout the ages, this history, even though the names and places will change, it will be valuable because it is basically saying that we're looking at archetypes of human behavior at Corsaira or Milos. And that, that's one thing I think the Greeks can teach us because they were very empirical. Partly they didn't have big cities, so they were out in the nature, but they were inquisitive about what they saw. But more, more importantly, unlike the Egyptians or the Persians or tribal people to the north, uh, they were able to express themselves with very little uh, religious or political bridles. And 
they had this idea of isogoria or elotheria, these ideas of freedom to express themselves. I know there were always efforts to repress it, but what that means is when you read uh, Aristotle or Plato or Sophocles, there's no critical consciousness that I shouldn't say this, or I'm going to use a euphemism because this can get me in trouble, or politically correct. And so they just say things that are empirical. They're based on their observation of nature, and they resonate with us because we can identify with it. And the problem what we're having, and it touches on our earlier discussion, is that we in the, the Western sophisticated postmodern world were so ideological or politically warped that we can't use particular expressions because we're worried about the effect of them on our career, on other people's sensitivities, ideas, like as you said, you don't say certain things because you might be considered, a person might be considered that they believe in a constant human nature rather than one that can be modified or modulated by education or money or, or whatever ideology. So it, it it's, I think that's why people go back to the Greeks, they'll say certain things. They'll say that old age is ugly yeah. and you're not as good looking at, at 80. But we will say those are your golden years or how dare you or ages. Or they'll make fun of uh, this. They'll call people in Aristophanes a pot-bellied stove or a barrel belly. And yet we would call that fat shaming. <laughs> or they'll say, you know, the Thracians are all wild. Don't trust them. Or the Spartans don't, are laconic. Or the Athenians are grasping. But these stereotypes, why we don't want to, you know, just trust them entirely, they're empirical. Yeah. And they don't mean it in a collectively, a collectively disparaging way all the time. They talk about themselves that way. And we, we were like that in America and I think in the West until the last 50 years. And then I don't know what happened. Uh, the Greeks would say they knew what happened. They would say that the real challenges to the Western paradigm, their own paradigm, is not failure but success, that when you combine freedom, personal freedom with market capitalism or private property that's very efficient in creating goods and services, your biggest challenge is creating an affluent, pampered, free, inert citizen that doesn't have physical challenges anymore. And that's what really, unfortunately, in, in classics, a whole Germanic school of Nietzsche, Hegel, but then Spengler and, and some of the, the more shadowy characters were kind of the nihilist and they they took their cue from petronius and suetonius and tacitus who were pessimists and who said look at the julio-claudian emperors and look at the the wealthy class they they're too wealthy and they're too free and but that was a theme that that all classical authors talked about is that society ages and when you get old a society got older it was con consumptive, it was not productive, it was in, it was lazy, it wasn't active, and uh, it was too affluent. And so poverty was not the, the real existential enemy, it was affluence. And freedom had to have bridles on it. You had to have tradition and shame and religion, anything that would prevent you from doing what was otherwise both possible and legal. And yet we've lost that today. Yeah, uh, you were mentioning earlier about, uh, I can't remember the, the reference, but someone was saying, uh, you know, aging is ugly, which brings me to a contemporary uh, debate I had on Twitter with a former supermodel who was lamenting the fact, she's, she's now roughly my age, she's 57, 
uh, 56 or 57 and she was basically arguing that men are so disgusting because here she goes she's now single her she's widowed her husband passed away her husband was the former lead singer of the cars if you remember them from the yes i do uh and so she was lamenting the fact that she goes to parties ready to mingle looking all dolled up and all of these men ignore her for younger women and so i decided uh this was an opportunity for me to impart some wisdom uh, on her. And so I wrote back very politely, publicly, stating, look, uh, part of living a good life is to uh, recognize reality as we face it. And the reality is that the mating value of men and women hold different trajectories. Women desire status in men. Therefore, typically, their, their, their mate value goes up with age. Whereas for women, men desire beauty and youth. And it is normal that you may not be as desirable to most men when you are an octogenarian than when you are nubile and 21. So rather than sort of having the humility to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for your evolutionary explanation, Professor Saad. I was mansplaining. I was a, uh, you know, part of the patriarchy. I was. A... And so... You know, that's one of the things I talk about in the next book. I mean, yes, uh, reality can sometimes slap us hard. But ultimately, if you are comfortable with reality, it's a lot better than to be parasitized by all sorts of conspiratorial things that have nothing to do with reality. Yes. Right. And, and reality doesn't care what she says, unfortunately. It just It's just there and it will continue to act in predictable ways. That's why when I first went to Greece, I was conditioned. Everybody said. Well, the, one of the worst, worst things, I was 19 when I went to Athens for the first year I lived there. I lived there two and a half years altogether over the years. But they said the dowry is terrible. It comes from the Greek Dora, Doron, and it's just, can you imagine giving money to your, child, to a, your daughter so somebody will marry her? Maybe, and I was that way. And then when I got older, I started to talk to, I looked at families and inheritance so I had two daughters and a, and a son. So what I said to, even though I had no money, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that each daughter has a house, <laughs> just like they do in Greece. And because she will marry a man and man be no damn good, because males have certain, we talked about those propensities you did right now, that maybe when they are in their 50s or something and they feel that they're distinguished and wealthy and their wife is not as hot as the people that they are seen at work, they will be kicked out of the house because they'll never own it. And that's that's one of the great things about if you go to Greece and you've know you you've been there and you know how it works, our southern Mediterranean society, when a Greek woman gets to be 55 or 60, she really owns more property than her husband does. And she's more savvy about it. And the husband has certain parameters he has to stay in. And until, you know, Athens is an exception and, and it's a bad trend, but divorce until the 80, 1980s were sort, sort of unusual there. And women had that power and it was a biological uh, based idea going back to the ancients. The ancients discuss it, why men do this and why women have property, especially Spartan women. And so I found it. One of my daughters passed away, but my older daughter owns a house. I think I don't want to disparage her, her son-in-law, whom I like a lot, <laughs> my son-in-law. But I think it's been it's been a good thing for their relationship Very that, she's, good. that she's the owner. Well, I mean, listen, uh, cultural traditions and cultural norms don't exist outside of biology. They typically exist because of biological problems. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you're thinking about 
the distribution of spice use across cuisines. Well, it turns out, now if you were a culture anthropologist, you would simply revel at the following observation. Uh, Mexican food is spicier than Swedish food. Good night, everybody. It ends there. Whereas an evolutionist would come along and say, well, is there a way that we can, through a consilient framework, explain the distribution of spice use around the world? And the answer turns out to be, Victor, that it is a solution the use of spices is a solution to a very real biological problem, which is in hotter climates, you have greater food pathogens Absolutely. and greater uh, proliferation of food pathogens. Therefore, cuisines evolve as a cultural adaptation to a biological problem. So we pickle our foods, we smoke our foods, we salt our foods, we use spices. So these cultural traditions don't exist as competing explanations to biology. They are they are working in tandem with biology. They are. And that, that, that's exactly true. I live in a community that's about 90% Mexican-American. Probably 30% of the people are here illegally from Mexico. And I had somebody last, uh, I was a member of a conversation with a younger person said, well, oh, she was a young woman. She goes, all these Mexican guys, they wear so much cologne. They do this. And I said, you should read about the sailors uh, at the Battle of Lepanto. That one of the things is if you were sweating in a hot climate and you don't have access to daily showers, it was very expensive, then you use a lot of scent. And so people from Mexico, from Oaxaca State, where most people come from, a lot of people don't have running water still. They don't have much less hot water. So the idea that somebody is going to be out there and sweating in 100 degrees, that's very hot here as well. And maybe they do now, but that cultural tradition is vestigial. It stays, it lingers. And so... She didn't like that uh, explanation because you were you were in, in, you were you were invoking some biological reality. Exactly, and it, when you because it might suggest, it might hint, and might give a whisper of innate uh, right. cultural differences, and then beneath that cultural differences rock there. They always feel they're going to unturn it and find a biological reason, which they'll unturn, and beneath that will be some type of in, inequality that's based on science, which I wasn't getting at, but that's where we are now. Yeah. Any idea of inequality eventually um, has to be, has to be, has to have a pathology behind it. And it has to be somebody did this rather than there can be inequalities that are, that are not toxic at all. People can have different values and some people want to work hard and have a big house. Somebody want to relax and have a smaller house. Somebody likes to have a Lexus. Somebody likes to have an old clunker. Some people, but any of these things uh, in this new equality result society, that they, they don't have a mechanism. That's what Tocqueville said, I think, in Democracy of America. He said that most people in a democratic society would rather be equal and, and equally poor than to be all better off, but have some people way better off. Right. Very interesting. You, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a study that I did uh, with one of my former doctoral students many years ago to speak about this point of relative positional ranking. So we, we asked people, would you prefer to receive $500 increase of your salary and another person, your close colleague, also receives $500 or you receive a $600 increase, but your colleague receives an $800 increase? So if you were to look at it from a income maximization perspective, I should prefer to receive $600 more than $500 because at least I have $100 more in my pocket. But many people 
chose to receive less money, but at least it was equally distributed. It was fair, even though it affected their bottom line, which speaks to the Tocqueville uh, remark, right? I think so. I know that there used to be that old truism of the difference between America and Britain, and it's been borne out when I've traveled to Britain and talked to people versus here, that when Americans saw a Cadillac, he went over to the owner and said, how did you get it? How much does it cost? And when you're in Britain, if they saw a Bentley, they'd like to kick in the, <laughs> the bumper in anger at that inequality. But there was something about the original American idea that it was easy, it's good envy, that it made you emulative. Yeah. And, and then it was deprecated by Europeans as the rat race or keeping up with the Joneses or whatever uh, cliche they use. But it was it was it's what made this country really good. I can remember growing up in the 1950s. My parents were so into this idea of 1950s. They came up very poor from poor families and farming. They went to my mother went to Stanford University. My dad went to University of Pacific and they wanted to be better. So we had the great books and we had the world book and we had Encyclopedia Britannica. And we were all supposed to read and then we were all going to get professions and we were all going to be in self-improving. And we had to learn how to shake hands and yes, sir, no, sir. And then the schools that taught us how to write a check. And I remember being in fourth grade and uh, we had all Hispanic audience. I've said this before, so I may be repeating myself, but Mrs. Evans was the speech therapist, which meant all of us could speak. We had the mechanical processes, but she was worried about diction and upward mobility. So she said to us, I have a stick shift Chevy every morning. We'd say everybody, but my brother and about three other people would say, I have a stick shift Chevy. <laughs> no, you have a stick. It's Chevy. It's not Chevy. And then she, it wasn't, it was condescending, but it was not racialized. She said, look, Miguel, you're going to be a CEO sometime, or you're going to be a jet pilot, and you've got to exude confidence, and you've got to show people that you've mastered the English language, which is the dominant language, so we're going to get this right. Well, she would be fired today for that, for <laughs> okay. cultural imperialism. And that was the kind of education that, that was common in the United States in the 50s. Assimilation, integration, intermarriage, no identity politics. But that's gone. Let's, uh, could, are we still okay? Another 10, yeah. 15 minutes? Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, excellent. I mean, I could keep you here for another three hours having lots of fun. Uh, let's do a bit of current events and then yeah. we can wrap it up with uh, a discussion of the, the dying citizen. And then uh, hopefully we'll chat again at some point in the future. Uh you mentioned earlier uh, Trump. So this is one thing that really upsets me as a consumer psychologist, evolutionary yeah. psychologist. So I, I study how people make decisions. So here is my theory, which I discuss in The Parasitic Mind, my latest book, and then you can uh, tell me what you think of it. So I think that the reason why our super smart, progressive, highfalutin, lisp-affected friends uh, think that Trump is an ogre and Obama is a majestic noble prophet it's because, hey, I was telling my wife, watch, I'm going to get Victor Davis Hanson to smile. Tick. I just got it. Uh, so so uh, there's an expression in Arabic. Uh, Arabic is my mother tongue, uh, Victor. Uh, there's an expression in Arabic that says getting, getting drunk simply by smelling the cork of the wine bottle, which basically means that I am so uh, weak of constitution that it, I don't need to actually drink the wine to get drunk. Yeah. I just swift the, the cork and I'm already drunk, right? Now, let's apply this to Obama versus, uh, versus Trump. 
So if you just whiff the 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 cork of Trump, he's disgusting. He's vile. He rev- he rev- right. He's an ogre. He speaks like a bully from Queens. On the other hand, noble prophet, peace be upon him, Barack Obama is tall. He right. He speaks in a mellifluous voice. He has a radiant smile. So I use all of the peripheral cues that are completely irrelevant to say that he's a noble prophet, whereas the other guy is a disgusting pig. Even though the positions that I hold, I'm speaking now as the super smart progressive from uh, yeah. from Malibu, even though my positions may be more in line with Trump than they are with Obama, those peripheral cues, I simply can't get beyond them. What do you think yes. of this analysis? Oh, I agree entirely. Remember David Brooks said that he admired o- Obama because his p- pants leg had a perfect crease on it. <laughs> and then I think uh, Chris Matthews said that his diction made him had a tingle down his leg. That's right. So uh, that was part of Trump's problem. And he was, uh, I asked a very prominent congressman, he came out here and I wasn't able to go and he gave a talk. And when they come out to the San Joaquin Valley, they being the political class, they wear the caterpillar hat, the jean jacket, the straw in the mouth. They have the tractor in the back and they fake the accent. The Hillary, the Hillary accent. Yes, exactly. I'm so tired. Or the Obama fake ghetto accent, you know. You know, he talks as if he's an inner city resident, this guy from prep school in, in Honolulu. So I said to him, did Trump come out? He said, well, you know, it's really weird. He came out at 104 in Tulare and he had a black suit on and he had these black shiny shoes and he has the orange dyed hair and the, uh, the yellow dyed hair and the orange skin. And he was sweating. I said, how about the accent? He said he had this obnoxious Queens accent or whatever it is. And I said, did he say anything? And he said... No, he just talked like he was Donald Trump from Manhattan. He talked about his building, his business. He, you know, Trump talked about Trump. And I said, well, did people like it? And they said they loved it. And it was authentic. Exactly. But, and people have, a lot of people appreciate that authenticity. But the other people, of course, they saw that as a window. And I used to play a game because I have, I think I'm the only person in my uh, family that voted for him. I mean, not my immediate, but my siblings, cousins, all those people. We were all a democratic agrarian family. And so I think I said to one person, I won't mention uh, two things. I said, Donald Trump, you know, and I was being facetious, but this person took it seriously. I said, what I didn't like about him was he he stonewalled Congress. He On the Fast and Furious, he wouldn't, Eric Holder would not turn over subpoenaed information. And then, you know, and... Then the worst thing about it, he he surveilled the Associated Press reporters. He did. He used the power of the IRS to deny uh, nonprofit status to groups right during the election year. And then he told, I said, I'm really worried that, you know, I I was telling him this, but I changed the right dates. And, of course, I was talking about Obama, but I was putting it in Trump's. And when I told him they got angry, then I said I got a little more imaginative. (laughs) And I said, what I don't like about Donald Trump is four things. He slept with a 17 and a half year old intern in Melania's bed. And he bragged about it. He got out. And the person said, oh, my God, I, I, I didn't know that. And I said, then he went to a cabinet meeting. He grabbed his phallus, pulled it out and said, does anybody overseas have anything like this? And then he had Ivanka arranging uh, a tryst with his mistress while he was in the old, in the White House, his own daughter. And 
they said, oh, my God, I told you, why'd you vote for him? I said, well, I said, I just described describe JFK, LBJ, and FDR. <laughs> and they didn't get, it was no enlightened, they got angry. Yeah. Well, that, 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 well, if that's true, there had to be a reason. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, FDR was a wonderful man, and, and JFK was just my, you know, it, it it was not empirical. So, yeah, he, and people tried to tell Trump that, but it, I, a couple of people called me, and I, you know, just to talk about stuff, and, and I said, it's a, it's a hard call, because if he were to restrain his tweets, win the soccer moms over, I, I think he would still keep the base. He would have done better, but it's hard to know. I mean, he's like chemotherapy, and we have a postmodern cancer in our society, <laughs> and he's designed to kill the cancer one day before he, before he kills us. Yeah. And that's the idea, or pit bull you let, you know, just point in the right direction. So that was a lot of the attraction for a lot of working people. They felt, I don't really care what he says. I just want to cut him loose and point him in the right direction because these people, these global bicoastal elites, they have it coming. There was a lot of that, I think, that was his attraction. What What amazes me is when, I mean, I'm unlike you who exited from academia, I still navigate in this cesspool of progressive vipers. And, uh, and, uh, I simply can't believe that people who have dedicated their lives to reason and you know empiricism and logic and truth seeking could be so blind. And and it's not I'm not coming from the perspective of you know I'm the apostle who holds the truth. I mean it's objective reality, right? I mean if you look at by the and, and by the way I can say these things and get away with them often because I'm Canadian. Therefore I always remind people I don't have a dog in this fight. I am the outsider speaking on someone else's behalf, right? So, so I look at someone like Biden and Kamala Harris, and again, I don't have a dog in this fight. To me, they are an insult to human decency, right? They're frauds, right? Whether you liked Trump or not, he was someone whom you felt truly cared. I mean, partly to he do did. well because of his narcissistic ego. I want to do well to be number one, but he genuinely cared. He was going he to work did. 18 hours a day because I want to do right by these people. When I look at Biden, a complete scammer and Harris, who, by the way, went to a high school very close to my house. I actually played high school soccer against her high school when she was yeah. there. So maybe she In was... Toronto, one of, right? No, Montreal. Montreal. Montreal, yeah. that's right. She that was I, with her mother, right? I her went mother. to West Hill High School. She went to Westmount, and we played against each other at exactly... We we're roughly the same age. And so what is it that is making these otherwise... I mean, we can't say that our colleagues in academia are all dumb lobotomized fools. No. What is it that makes them not see what you and I see? What what is what is the disconnect? There's a couple of things that I've found and I, I will add before answering very quickly is that he was the first politician I said to my wife, that's the first pearl person has used the first person plural possessive pronoun our. He would go to a place and he said, we're gonna take care of our vets. We're gonna take care of our farmers. And that was really sincere, as you said. And why did they hate him so much? And I think enough of them understood that he was not going to be John McCain or Mitt Romney. That when he said he was going to close the border and he was going to get tough on China and he was going to reindustrialize the Middle West and he was not going to have optional military engagements, he meant it and he was going to pump more oil. And they thought that they could handle McCain 
and the Bushes, and they were part of a bi-coastal establishment, but not this guy. He didn't give a crap. That was number one. Number two, the people who really were powerfully, that were that had the power, a Mark Zuckerberg that uh, put $419 million in the account to at pre-selected precincts we know in the 2020, or a Bill Gates, or a Warren Buffett, or a Jeff Bezos, or the high professional classes. Some of who are, I mean, we're talking, when we talk about academics, let's be honest, at Stanford or Harvard or Yale, these people make $200,000 and above. So they are the elites. And their way of thinking, they had, it's almost a medieval psychological I found with them that they feel guilty about their privilege. They know that their socialist boilerplate says there's a capitalist insect praying parasitic class, but they're, that's that class now. The Democratic Party yeah. is the class of the subsidized poor and the very wealthy. And how they square that circle is they lash out at the lower white working class. And they say these are in cling. Just think of the disparagement vocabulary. Clingers, irredeemables, deplorables, Joe Biden, dregs, scum, uh, chumps. John McCain, crazies. And by attacking that white class, they feel that they, even though they're wealthy and they're connected, that they have, they're acceptable, that they feel good about themselves. They're still progressive. And then when on all these issues, they can, uh, if you look at the Bay Area intellectual that I have to deal with, they don't, they want gas at $7 a gallon. They don't not give a damn about somebody in Fresno County that's poor, that can't afford it. And a, they don't travel very much. They want 27 cents a kilowatt. Well, where I work, I've never had a heater or an air conditioner at the Hoover Tower. Here, it's 105 and people go to Walmart to keep cool. They have their kids in prep schools, but they don't, they hate charter schools, they hate home learning, they hate, um, and they love teachers unions. So all of their nostrums are predicated on the idea they never, they know they don't work, but they're never going to suffer the consequences of their own ideology. Exactly. George Soros's thousand DAs he put in every county in America, they're never going to break into Mark Zuckerberg's. Nancy Pelosi can give the greatest lecture every week about the evil of the border wall. But if you go, when I drive to Napa and I see that house she has, it's got a wall. They all have walls. Mark Zuckerberg got a 50,000 acre estate with a wall in Hawaii. So part of it is they're so wealthy and privileged that uh, they don't really care that Trump is trying to help the middle class because they want to feel good and utopian and they want to have, they don't believe in God or transcendence, but their God is uh, progressive humanism and he's, he's not doing what they want. If you, if they were poor, and they had to drive to work or turn on the air conditioning or they had to have kids in bad schools or they were threatened by the inner city thug, they wouldn't they wouldn't have the privilege of these ideas. But they, it's also a guilt. It's, it's like instead of if they were alive at 1200 A.D. and they were fornicating or money lending or whatever, they would write out a contractual penance to put, you know, I'll put two blocks on the dome of St. Peter's and I get to go to heaven, I still get to be a fornicator and a ursurer. For them, 
I can scream about on Twitter about Donald Trump and the rallies in January 6th, and then I still get to live in Atherton. I still get to have my kids go to uh, Menlo School. So that that's a lot of it. And uh, they don't, I, I find them very callous. They don't care about the ramifications. And you mentioned Biden and uh, Biden, what what's happened with him is that he was always a mean spirited person. Yeah. If you, I went back and looked at the tapes of the hearings of Bork and, and Clarence Thomas, he was, he was, he didn't have, whatever his quality, he didn't have to be mean. He was arrogant and mean. He was a plagiarist that had to drop out of two presidential. He stole Neil Kinnock's speech almost word for word and said it was his own. He lied about his transcript. He was very, I mean, Peter Schweitzer's book claims $30 billion. I don't know how that could be possible that that consortium leveraged from China and other Eastern European countries. But he was always of dubious. He charged the Secret Service 2000 a month to use a little cottage on his estate. So he wasn't a good guy. And then when he got older, that veneer of, of, of cognizance was peeled off. Right. So everybody says, I cannot believe he said, put you all back in chains a few years. I cannot believe the corn pop stories. I cannot believe he told an African-American uh, disc jockey, you ain't black and you're a junkie. Another one he called a junkie. I can't believe he was president of the United States. And he said to one of his African-American support, hey, boy. And what we're really seeing is what he always was. Right. It's just that the con constructed veneer has been ripped off by age, in his case. Yeah. And we're seeing somebody who is not a very nice figure, never was. So when they say, oh, good, good old Joe Biden from Scranton, I think he was always a mean-spirited, insecure, mean guy. And now we see what he always was. Ha have you had... saw it yesterday, was it two days ago, when he said, when Peter Ducey asked a question, and he just... Oh, said, son, of, son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. He's uh, going to do that more and more. They were not going to be able to stop him because that's the real Joe Biden. Have you had any of your Democrat friends come to you and admit to now ha feel experiencing great buyer's remorse or no one has the epistemic humility to admit that they maybe voted wrongly? Uh, no, they say things like, uh, well, we didn't know Biden was going to be so impaired or uh, Trump left such a mess that you can't blame Biden. No, it's a religion for them and they can't admit that. And I just had a very controversial conversation with somebody at Hoover about uh, packing the court. And, they, and I said, why would you want to, I said, why are these so-called people warning us about democracy is gonna die when they lose in 2022? Remember that now sure. all of a sudden, I said, but, they want to end a 233-year-old electoral college in the Constitution. They want to destroy the nine-person Supreme Court that's been there for 150 years. They want to destroy the 180-year filibuster. They want to destroy the constitutional right of states' priv privilege to set ballot laws uh, in their own states and national election. They want to destroy 60 years of 50 states, all for short term. And the person interrupted me and said, well, Trump packed the court. I said, well, what do you mean he packed the court? Well, he appointed conservative people and packed them <laughs> in. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, Amy Comey Barrett is so incompetent. I said, are you seriously think that 
Sonia Sotomayor towers over Amy Coney. Okay. Are you serious? And he was. And then he said, you know, they're all conservative. I said, well, what did Obama? He and I like. I mean, I have no thing against Kagan or so. But they're left wing. That's what they do. But the difference is that in the past, every left wing, every right wing jurist from Earl Warren or John Paul Stevens, they all went left. And then Trump said, they're not going to go left anymore. We're not going to have any more David Suiters. So we tried it, and they're still probably going to go left. But I said, that's what they do. But this person was so convinced that he could use the word pack the court incorrectly, and I wouldn't object. And so, no, they're not going to change. What's going to change is this, because they are, as we've been talking, human. And I think they're going to get a, uh, a correction. That's not the right word. A... 2010-1938 blowout in the midterms yeah. that they have not, and, to, and they're going to lose the Senate. And I think a lot of the Republicans I've talked to, they said, you know, we don't believe in tit for tat, but they'll never learn unless we tell them, you yank people off our committees, and we've never done that in the, in the House. We're going to yank Adam Schiff off the intelligence. He's not qualified. We're going to get <laughs> Swalwell out. He's had relations with a Chinese spy. And maybe, maybe, maybe Kevin McCarthy will have to tear up the uh, State of the Union dress on national TV of Biden, <laughs> if you want. And that will send them a mess. So I think that they feel it's kind of like Thucydides said uh, at the uh, at the end of the Sicilian expedition, Xenophon, when Athens fell, said the same thing, that the Athenians were panicked because they'd known all of the uh, wrongs they had inflicted on people, and now the walls were in danger and the enemy was at the gates, and they were worried, first of all, that this enemy would not be magnanimous as they had not been magnanimous. So I think a lot of this paranoia is the Democrats are getting away and say, wait a minute. We impeached for the first time a president twice. We impeached a president twice without a special counsel report, without cross-examination. We even tried a president the second time who was a private citizen. Yeah. We didn't even use constitutional high crimes and misdemeanors. And if they win the House, they might do that to Biden because he hasn't enforced well, you know, immigration law or something. And he didn't exercise, faithfully carry out his laws, uh, the laws of the land as the Constitution. So, yeah, I think that uh, I, I agree with you. They're not, inca they're incapable. What they hate also about Biden is, you know, they love style. So JFK and Bill Clinton was mellifluous and uh, Biden, they thought was, I mean, Obama, they thought was so precious. Yeah. And Republicans are like George W. Bush that can't talk, or John McCain who can't lift his shoulder up, or Trump. And now all of a sudden they've got a guy that's their representative, their icon of liberal values, and he can't finish the sentence. And he looks like he almost looks reptilian without any blood. <laughs> and so it's sad. Yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way, but when people start criticizing him, we've all had people we know that are suffering onset dementia which i think he is and we're always sympathetic yeah but it's so half of us wants to be sympathetic and then the other half gets angry that the democrats knew about this and they put him in the basement and constructed this fake campaign where he didn't go out and campaign and he his job was to carry a hardcore leftist progressive agenda across the finish line and then it was done and and that was kind of a joke on the american people but that wasn't a nice thing to do do you think that uh, 
Kamala Harris will uh, run the, the, uh, in 2024? Uh, she will run. Whether she'll get an, one delegate this time, I'm not sure. But she is she is the most inept candidate I've seen. I've watched her a lot in California because she was our senator and yeah. our tenant general, and she she has it. She has the Hillary bothersome cackle, but yeah. it's even worse. And she doesn't know anything. She was a product of Willie Brown. That was her yeah. uh, paramour. And he he taught her how to be ambitious, but she has no broad learning. So she doesn't know anything about the issue. And she's so inured to identity politics that she's a black woman. And that's her whole frame of reference. And so I think they're embarrassed of her. So, no, I don't think that she's I think she's going to run, but I don't think the party is going to nominate her. Well, I wake up every day. I mean, again, as a Canadian, not not wanting to hear that Joe Biden passed away, because from a deontological perspective, the thought of her becoming this historical figure, the first, you know, female president of the United States bothers me so much it is such sure. an affront to human decency that i keep my fingers crossed please make it for the next three years so that she and doesn't don't get think that joe biden may not have known that but when he when he said he had to have a black woman as running mate and you looked at the black woman whether it was stacy abrams or maxine waters there were not a lot of black women at the national level who could be president and so when they picked her a lot of people on the right said this is it was I, I heard this so much and I said it. This is Richard Nixon picking Spiral Agnew. Was, Agnew was so bad that when they wanted to go after Nixon, they said we can't do it because we'll get Agnew. So what they did is they turned attention, they detoured for about six months and went after Agnew and found out he was he all everybody knew he was corrupt, but they said that now he's corrupt and they they and he resigned and then once he resigned and they got Jerry Ford, they, everybody liked good old Jerry, and they can impeach him. So there's a lot of conspiracy theorists who think that her appointment was no accident, that Biden would fail but want to continue in office, and then everybody would say, see, you want to get her? Are you?" And the next in line is Nancy Pelosi. So I think a lot of Republicans are, are very wary about impeaching him. Right, wow. They, okay. they may have a... They could take. They could, in theory, take the Senate and not just take the Senate, but you know, ten seats. They could win a sixty-vote majority. Then what do they do? Because they'll get together and they'll say, "We can not only impeach him in the House, we could convict a president for the first time in history, and then we would be in control." Well, you wouldn't be in control because you've got somebody who's—I don't want to use that word too much—but an existential danger. Yeah. Because of incompetence and arrogance, ignorance and arrogance. Yeah. Uh, last question, uh, Victor, a yeah. uh, personal one. Uh, we didn't get a chance to mention The Dying Citizen. So let me remind people, you need to go out and buy this book right away when you finish listening to this. Uh, last question. So uh, one of my former uh, psychology professors, I, I studied at Cornell. His name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the study of the psychology of regret. Uh, basically, the idea being that there are two types of regret. There is regret that I experienced due to an action. You know, I shouldn't have cheated on my wife. It ended our marriage. So that's I did something. Therefore, I regret it. Then there is regret due to inaction. You know, yeah. I wanted to go and become an artist. Instead, I followed my dad's footsteps and became a farmer. And I never liked the agrarian life. And now I'm 70 and I regret it. Most people, when they look back on their lives in terms of their biggest regret, it's usually one of inaction. 
so I'll pose the question to you. You still hopefully have many more years left on this earth, but if you look back at your life, what might be some the biggest regrets that loom and uh, haunt your mind? Well, there have I have regrets some actions, and that was I I think in my twenties and thirties I was a brawler. I didn't follow the rules of the Sermon on the Mount. By that I mean in my family, if somebody uh, said when we divided something up and they said, well, I'm going to get this 10 acres and, and I would fight tooth and nail, not to take what was not mine, but I thought I, I had no money. I had children. So I was, and if I had a neighbor and he was stealing water from me and that happened, I would go over there and say, if you do that again, I'm going to shoot you. And so I was pretty tough. And now when I'm a little bit more comfortable, I look back, did you really have to do that? Well, I, so you, I think everybody regrets things like that, that you were hard scrabble to get things. I didn't do anything that was illegal. I didn't do anything that was amoral, but I feel sometimes I was tit for tat. As far as regret, I get this letter. I don't know if it's a can letter, maybe about once a month. You feel like there's a conspiracy and it goes like this. Dear Professor Hansen, I read the other Greeks. I read A War Like No Other and they're reviewing the classical articles I wrote. Now I throw them against the wall or I don't even look at them. You disgrace yourself. You're horrible. You left classics and now you're a, a partisan for Trump and I can't read you anymore. And it's the same letter, only the different <laughs> vocabulary and syntax. So I wonder sometimes uh, should I have stayed in classics rather than to branch out? Then on the other hand, I'll get a call from somebody who says, I'm a long haul truck driver. I'm listening to your podcast. Exactly. Thank you so much. I'm not crazy. I am not a conspiracist. You, you are on our side. So it's a wash. But everybody has those, as you say, those regrets. Mine are more of what I could have uh, done. I had two very close people in my life. Um, my mother, who was on this farm and she grew up here and her father was very poor and had not gone to college and he mortgaged this farm and sent his three daughters to Stanford in the 30s. I don't know why he did that. It was crazy. And then she got a law degree and she was a judge and she was kind of my confidant. My dad, I love my dad too. So, But she was the one that pushed me to go and she always said, you've got to become a professional and you save this farm for us because anybody who farms will lose it because farming is it's going to lose money. But I, I miss her. She died very young at 64 of a brain tumor. And then I had a, three kids. I loved them equally. But I had a beautiful young daughter uh, that, well, of all my three kids, she was the most interested in writing and kind of, and she helped me organize tours. And she died suddenly at 26 of leukemia. Oh, my God. Within, within the space of seven days. It was a very rare form of malignant and gave her a, a stroke. So I look back at that, and that really changed my life. So I kind of, every day I try to talk to my children and call friends. And I realize that you get older, I'll just finish with this, that friendship is work. I always took, you know, we're all friends for life. But if you don't try to cultivate uh, and maintain a friendship, call them and make sure. So I kind of regret that, too. I've had a lot of close friends that I've been so busy, but I'm, I'm working on that as I get older, to make sure that we're still friends and call them and see how they are. Wow. Uh, on that on that dour note, yeah. I'm sorry yeah. to end it this way. I, I hope to now consider you a new friend. It has been an honor and privilege to meet you. 
as I said, you've been, I've been a longtime fan of yours. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you yes. so much, Victor. It was and, really great. And thank you. And it's so nice to see an academic who smiles. I don't do it enough, but you do. <laughs> thank you, Victor. Thank you.